It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, with it being Jessica's birthday and Valentine's Day, I, I feel like I should kind of people say, oh, you can't forget her birthday. Well, when we were engaged, I actually tried to convince her to get married on Valentine's Day as well, so I would just have to remember one date. Um, that, didn't, that didn't fly. But I can empathize as somebody whose birthday is like right around the corner from Christmas. Like I, I get it. It kind of just gets all mushed together, right? And some of you know what I'm saying. Um, but I want you to uh, imagine as we start this morning, imagine a wedding, right? Uh, imagine a wedding day. And so, you know, imagine a sanctuary all decorated up for a wedding. Um, bride and groom and guests. I mean, a wedding outside of COVID, right? <laughs> like a legit wedding where we can actually like do stuff. And uh, all the festivities, all the celebration, all the anticipation, the, the time, the energy, the resources that went into preparing for this and finding the right dress and invitations and, and catering and all that work. Um, and then you have the wedding ceremony and the, the groom stands up here next to the preacher <laughs> waiting for his bride to come in. She makes the grand entrance into the back. Everybody pays attention to her. And then they go through the whole ceremony. There's an exchange of rings and, and crying and a first kiss and, and all of that of the, of the first wedding, you know, of wedding celebration, right? But then when the music has stopped and the pastor has, you know, presented the crowd, uh, the happy couple for the first time, and they play the music and the the new husband and wife make their quick exit out to the back to greet the, the guests or whatever. And the crowd simmers down and goes and gets in their cars. And the husband and the wife have their first moments of peace and quiet after that to kind of catch their breath and figure out what's going on. And the bride turns to the husband and says, that was amazing. That was great. I'm so glad that we did that. That was an amazing day. Uh, I think I'm going to head home now, and maybe I'll see you in a week or two. Um, maybe I'll call you sometime if I need something. Um, I mean, this was great. We had a wonderful experience, and I know where to find you if I need you. Um, but I'm going to go back to what I need to focus on. Right, and... and um, our marriage is important, the bride says, so I wouldn't want to go too many weeks without seeing you or talking to you. So I've got you on speed dial. I'll call you when I need something. Um, and this sounds absurd, right? Like, I mean, it's intentionally absurd the way that I'm telling it, but that's not how a, a marriage would work, right? It's not a good way to start an important relationship. Wouldn't we mostly agree that the best relationships are the ones where we get to know the people that we're in that relationship with? At a, at a deeper level, the best relationships are the ones where we have inside jokes and that same old story that we tell all the time and, and the ones where you know those people's weaknesses and you know their strengths and they know your weaknesses and they know your strengths. and right, That's what real relationships, friendships, marriages, right? that's what makes a good relationship. Spending time together, a commitment to focus on that relationship, a commitment to focus on that relationship even when it's hard or difficult or you want to do something else. 
Today is the last Sunday in Epiphany, in the season after Epiphany. Um, and our Seeing Jesus, Seeing God series is coming to a conclusion. And as we conclude this series and as we conclude this season, we're going to explore today the reality that a lot of people encountered Jesus during his life. A lot of people met Jesus during his time on earth. But very few got to know the real Jesus, got to see the real Jesus. And so um, that's kind of the backdrop for what we're talking about today. Um, Our scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. It says, six days later, we got it coming on the screen to follow along. I mean, we can sing the song again, I guess. <laughs> you get it? So close. We'll go without it here in a second. All right. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And then as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this word this morning, this unique story, this important story in the life of Jesus. For one reason or another, we, we struggle with this idea of transfiguration. What is its significance? What was really going on here? What, what does it mean that he... He was whiter than the most bleached white you could get. He he shined. What does it mean that he talked with, with Moses and Elijah on top of a mountain? It's just a weird story, Father. So we ask that you're, through your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would bring understanding and wisdom. But, Father, not for the purpose of just knowing what happened in this story, but for the purpose of engaging Jesus, to drawing nearer to him, to have that deep, intimate relationship with him. Father, we thank you and we love you. Amen. And amen. Um, Like I said, this is a unique story. You don't see transfigurations happening throughout the Bible. Um, 
And it's not something that even as you're reading the story of Jesus that, that there's an expectation for it. You don't see, oh, on Thursday we're going to go get Jesus transfigured or something. Like it's just, it's a unique event. It seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Jesus takes uh, Peter and James and John up a mountain and they have this experience where they witness Jesus being transfigured. Um, transfigured is a funny word. Think of it as meaning he's made more beautiful he is elevated. He is raised to a, a higher level. Um, the scripture that Paul read for us this morning talked about the, the glory of God. If you remember several weeks back, we were talking about the temple and the presence of God. And when, when you hear the word glory, you can almost, it's not equivalent, but it's close. If you, if you can say glory equals God's presence in might and power, so it's the, the powerful revelation, the powerful presence of God revealed in Jesus... Um, it's kind of what this transfiguration means. And then out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah appeared. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. Then the voice of God says, this is my son. And this is similar to Jesus' baptism story, if you remember. When Jesus comes up out of the water, God says the same thing. This is my son. Listens to him. This is my son, who I'm with I am well pleased. Um, and so here on top of this mountain, that voice again shows up and says, this is my son. And then after that, Moses and Elijah were gone. They just disappeared into thin air. And Jesus then tells his disciples, I know this was a crazy event, but don't tell anybody what you saw. And they go back down the mountain like this never happened. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here that, that we first address where this happened. Right? It happened on top of a mountain, and that's not just a casual or accidental uh, happenstance. It's not a detail that we can throw out. Because mountains in the Bible and mountains in the culture for Jesus are where you meet God, and God makes it possible for you to know him. That's what mountains did in, in this culture. Um, so, for example, Moses, where does he go to get the Ten Commandments? He goes up a mountain, right? And, and the Ten Commandments, don't think of them as ten laws or ten rules, right? That, you know, here God can't wait to establish a, a judicial system and, and punish people and send them to jail. No, the, these were people that had just escaped from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they were now in the wilderness, and they were now exploring for the first time what does it mean to be the people of God without Pharaoh and the Egyptian culture dictating that to them. And so Moses goes up the mountain and God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like and this is what my people will be like. Right? So Moses goes up the mountain and he comes down with revelation about who God is and who God's people are. And then Elijah, there's a story a little bit later in the history of the Bible. You have Elijah and he goes up Mount Sinai. And it says while he's up there, there was an, a great wind. And it was, it was terrifying to Elijah, but there was this great wind, and he said God wasn't in that wind. And then there was a great earthquake, and it says Elijah was terrified, and God was not in that earthquake. And then there was a great fire that went by, but again, God was not in that fire. But then there was a small, quiet voice, and God was, was that voice. And so Elijah had gone up this mountain 
and met God. And he wasn't this big, terrible God of fire and earthquakes and destructive wind that maybe they thought he was, but he was this quiet, calm, peaceful voice. And so he had gone up this mountain and he had an encounter with God. But the trick is, in the Old Testament, you see, there's very few people that go up the mountain and meet God. Moses went up the mountain, but not all of the Israelites went up the mountain. It's usually chosen leaders or the prophets that have these mountaintop experiences, these revelations that come at the top of the mountain. But Jesus, when he goes to the top of the mountain, he takes three of his followers with him, right? And they see Jesus transfigured, and they hear the voice of God. Again, on top of a mountain, they hear from God, and they see Jesus transformed, transfigured. They see the glory of God, but it's not in a cloud. It's not uh, in fire. It's not in a, in a temple. It's in Jesus himself. And so they started to realize who God was because they realized who Jesus was. Right? They, they were seeing Jesus, and because they were seeing Jesus, they were seeing God. This comes in where the sermon series title comes from. It's the revelation of God on top of this mountain. They see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, connecting Jesus with these prophets from long ago. And they hear this voice of God again, which wasn't something that everyone got to hear. He invites these three disciples up the mountain so that these followers could get to know God in a way that most people prior to this could only ever imagine. And this is what Epiphany is about. This is what this whole season, this is what this whole sermon series has been about. Not just learning information about Jesus, but getting to know God. Really know God. Not know about him, but know him. And this, this challenge, this invitation in the season of Epiphany and moving forward, it will challenge our assumptions about who we think God is. God is always bigger than our idea of who God is. We can't put God in a box and say, I've got God figured out. God will continue to surprise us. And this, this season of Epiphany hopefully challenged what we are comfortable with and pushed us outside of our comfort zones. I mean, the disciples, the three that went up with Jesus, were terrified. I think I would have been terrified as well. God is bigger than us and bigger than we can imagine, and he doesn't fit into a box, and he doesn't fit into one particular ideology. And so it is through Jesus we get the most picture-perfect image of God possible. God in human form. God in physical uh, form, represented for all to see and to touch. But even at this point in the story, that picture isn't complete yet, right? Because he says, don't say anything until after the resurrection. So you, you, you can see Jesus, you can see the, the transfiguration, you can see the, the glowing and the, the white light and the, the glory of God shining on top of this mountain, but Jesus says, don't tell anybody not because I don't want people to know, but because you don't have the full picture of God yet. It's not until the Son of Man is raised from the dead will you truly understand what this God is all about. You still don't have the full picture, so don't go telling the wrong story about who Jesus and God is. 
But the truth is that in Jesus and through Jesus, God is made known, not just to a select few, but to the whole world. Right? This is what's so amazing about revelation through Jesus. Is knowing God is no longer limited to a special group of, of insiders and excluded to everybody else. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you can't come to the Father except through me. If you want to know God, you can know God. He's saying it's possible. But if you want to know God, you do so through a relationship with Jesus. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he does more than forgive our sins. And of course, forgiveness of sins is a, a foundational concept and a big part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. Forgiveness of sins is, is critical, but Jesus does more than just forgive sins. He provides us a way to know God as part of a deep and life-giving relationship. Because of Jesus, we are able to draw near to God. And in a way that the Old Testament heroes, the most faithful, the, the superstars of the Old Testament, they could not imagine the type of relationship with God that we have freely today. They wanted desperately to know God. But there was always barriers and limitations. They, you, you see, the prophets in the Old Testament talk about searching out the mind of God, of, about turning their back or not being able to follow because the, the, the path isn't lit clearly enough. There was barriers between them and truly knowing God. But with Jesus, everything changed. Because with Jesus, God is made knowable. Do you want to know what God looks like? Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And so there's this huge difference. I don't know if we've got slides working or not. If we can get this on the screen, if it'll work. If not, there it is. There's a huge difference between a life shaped by seeking things seeking to get things from God, and a life shaped by seeking to know God. I'm going to say that again because I, I, <laughs> that was not a smooth reading. There's a huge difference between a life shaped by seeking to get things from God and a life shaped by seeking to know God. During the time that Jesus walked on earth, he met a lot of people. People in synagogues where he worshiped and studied. He met people in his village where he grew up. He he met people who heard about his miracles and they came and found him and wanted to see for themselves if they could get a miracle, if they could get healed. They wanted to know what was going on. There's people who met Jesus who wanted to hear what Jesus was going to do for them. People who were given bread and fish in miraculous fashion. People who, were, who felt threatened by Jesus and wanted him removed from the scene, taken out because he was that threat. There was people who shared meals with Jesus. There was, Jesus encountered lots and lots and lots of people. A lot of people met Jesus when he walked the earth. Many were excited about what he was doing and teaching. But of the thousands of people that Jesus affected, the thousands of people that Jesus encountered, only three were on the mountain to see him transfigured. There was only three that saw him talking with Moses and Elijah. 
There's only three that heard the voice of God saying, this is my son. God is making himself known through Jesus, and yet many who met Jesus only got a glimpse or a taste of God. They didn't walk with Jesus. They didn't follow him. They didn't listen to everything that, they, that he said. They got what they wanted and were content. And, and there's nothing wrong with wanting healing, with wanting forgiveness, with wanting information. None of those things were wrong. And people came and got those things and were content. And there are some that are only concerned about what they are going to get from God or their status with God. But again, there is a huge difference between a life shaped by seeking to get things from God and a life shaped by seeking to know God. And so the question for us today is whether we want to be the person that met Jesus that one time at that one place when we did that one thing, and that was a great moment, and I remember it like it was yesterday, but it wasn't yesterday. It was a long time ago. And I have a testimony of something that happened a long time ago, and it was good, and I met Jesus there. Or do we want to be someone who has a deeply personal relationship with Jesus in such a way that we get to go on the mountain with him and see him as he reveals God to the world? And this is something that I've wrestled with as a pastor. But not everyone, believe it or not, gets excited about having the opportunity to personally know God, the Father, creator of the heavens and the earth. Not everybody gets, gets excited about having that opportunity. In Jesus, we have full access to God of the universe, creator of all things, who loves us. We have the ability to, to call that God Father. But there's a lot of people that don't get excited about that. That's not what they see when they seek Jesus. Some people are focused on what's the best I can get from God without having to do too much. And, I, and these, it shows up, I'm not trying to be critical, but it shows up in these types of questions and, and comments. Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? How often is enough? Does online count? That's a question we wrestled with. Do I have to pray to be a Christian? Do I have to pray out loud in front of people to be a Christian? Do I have to read my Bible? How often do I have to read my Bible to be a Christian? Do I have to do all the things that Jesus teaches me to be a Christian? And the one that I probably see the most, and it's, it shows up on, on social media a lot, and it's, I think it's more clickbait to try and get people to click on articles to, to generate ad, ad sales. But the one that I see the most is, can I still do blank and be a Christian? <laughs> can I still drink a little bit and be a Christian? Can I uh, gamble and be a Christian? Can I be divorced and get a Christian can I, and be a Christian? Can I, can I not go to church and be a Christian? Can I, you know, fill in the blank? I see this all over the, pl- all over the place. It's like the, the couple who got married and then only interacted with each other on occasion. My example from the beginning. You know how awkward that felt when I was talking about a bride that didn't want to get to spend time with her new husband. 
How they had just started a marriage relationship, the most intimate relationship that two people can have, and there was no interest in having that type of intimate relationship. They asked questions like, how often do I have to talk to my spouse to stay married? Right? How much effort do I really have to put into this marriage to make it work? Like, what's the minimum? Tell me what that is so I can do the minimum. How much time do I have to spend with them in order for it still to be considered a marriage? (laughs) These are not good questions. (laughs) It's an indication that you're viewing the relationship from the wrong perspective. The whole point of being married to somebody is you get to have that type of relationship with them. Not that you have to. If you don't want to, then don't get married, right? And if you don't want to be close to God... If you don't want to see God, then what's Christianity all about? The example at the start of the, for for this bride only wanting to see her husband for an hour a week or every other week was meant to show us how ridiculous it is for a Christian or a church to only want the minimum to be in relationship with God. When we now have access and an invitation to know God in a deeply personal way. I hope you saw through the, the it wasn't hid, hidden very well, the, the thinly veiled idea that, oh, we'll talk once a week, an hour a week, maybe an hour every other week. Um, I could have said, maybe we'll talk on Sunday for an hour and really kind of put the, drove the point home. Um, but there's a huge difference between a life shaped by seeking to get things from God and a life shaped by seeking to know God. And so the question for us today Do we seek to know God? Or do we simply just want to get something from God? Do we want a relationship? Or do we want a transaction? In relationship, we spend time with someone. We get to know them. We listen. We talk. We grow together. We learn more about each other. Because that's how relationships work. Transactions are about what do I have to give in order to get what I need or what I want. For example, I don't necessarily feel any closer to Amazon Prime now, today, than when I ordered my first book from Amazon years ago, although I still enjoy New Book Day. Um, (laughs) When a new Bible commentary shows up, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, It's the highlight of the week. Yep. but I don't, I, I don't say that I have a relationship with Amazon Prime. Maybe some people do. I don't know. But like, I wouldn't feel that sense of intimacy or closeness with them. I send them money, and they send me my book. Many of us were introduced to Jesus through an invitation to get forgiveness. And like I said, that's not a bad invitation. That's a great place to start. It's a wonderful place to start. And so while forgiveness is so important and there's no gospel without it, God has much, much more to offer. God gives us forgiveness so that we can be in this relationship. And so the invitation for us today, as we begin to kind of wrap up this thought on Transfiguration Sunday, the invitation is to engage in practices and disciplines that lead you to knowing the knowable God. 
engage in practices and disciplines that will lead you to knowing the knowable God. You're not going to end up on top of that mountain with Jesus by accident. Those three disciples that got to see Jesus fully revealed as the glory of God had been with him for a long time. They had walked with him. They had failed and admitted their failures with him. They were confused, and yet they continued to follow. They had trusted him as he led them from place to place and asked them to do some pretty strange things. (laughs) And there they were, on top of this mountain, in a place that very few people in the history of the world had ever been before, standing in the presence of God, audibly hearing the voice of God. And in Jesus, like I said a few moments ago, in Jesus, we all have that opportunity. And so, we're not going to fully embrace that opportunity, though, by accident. And so we have to choose to engage in practices and disciplines that will lead us to knowing the knowable God. Well, what kind of practices and disciplines would that be? Well, the first one, the big one is worship. I, I know worship has become a, a description of a type of song or a genre of music these days. But worship is so much more than that. Worship is response to the living God engaging us. And so, uh, you know, Pastor Hannah and I have been talking recently about what does it mean to be a worship pastor and how in this, this year to come, it's my belief that if the church is going to be faithful to what it's, it, it's called to do, that it's going to be worship that defines who we are and how we live. And worship includes, like I said, more than just singing, you know, what four songs are we going to sing on a Sunday morning or, you know, what Spotify channel am I turning on? Um, but worship is prayer. It's a response to God. It's, it's a conversation. It's an acknowledgement of who God is and what God is doing. There's corporate worship. We gather together like we do on, on, on Sunday mornings. Worship is also about being generous. It's about acknowledging that what we have been given was given to us by God. And so because it is something that God gave us, we are called to freely share it with others. So our giving becomes a response. It becomes an act of worship. Whether we put it in the offering plate or whether we use it to help somebody in need or whether we use that money to buy my car and then therefore my car becomes a tool for God to use in this world. Beyond worship, though, it's, it's it, another discipline or practice is developing intentional relationships. This is a bit of a challenging one. Our, our world has become such a fragmented and divided thing that we kind of like to stick with our, with our own groups, people that are like us and think like us. But in order to see Jesus in the wild, we have to be intentional about developing relationships with people outside of our, our bubbles, outside of our comfort zones. Another practice, another discipline is discipleship. Somewhere along the way, discipleship became education, Christian education. And those two words are not synonymous. Discipleship is not about what you know in your brain. Discipleship is about being an apprentice to Jesus. 
And so there is individual study involved there. I read my Bible. I read books about God that help me understand. Um, and so that's a big part of it. Discipleship is part of a group, you know, Sunday school. And I know a lot of the, the external discipleship stuff has, has struggled because of, of COVID regulations and restrictions. Um, but that doesn't mean that we've just have given up on being disciples. Another good practice under the, the heading of discipleship is serving. Again, discipleship is being an apprentice. It's letting Jesus be our teacher, our mentor. And Jesus served others. He served everyone, <laughs> the lowest and the least. And he calls us to do the same. So the act of serving others is a practice of discipleship in which we will see Jesus. We will see God. And so the invitation, like I said, is to choose and commit to engaging in practices and disciplines that will reveal God to us in a clear picture. A busy church or a busy Christian is not the goal. We're not trying to fill up calendars to to keep Christians running from one thing to the next. Churches can have lots of programs and activities and still not engage in the practices and disciplines that lead people to knowing the knowable God. We can entertain, and we can gather together and do activities that we enjoy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're activities that reveal God to us. And so the focus for for this year as a church and as individuals in the church is to find and commit to these practices and disciplines that will reveal God to us in our midst. And it's not rocket science. It's not, it's, it's not trick. We don't have to start from, from nothing. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. The church has been praying and gathering and serving and being generous for 2,000 years. We as Christians just need to embrace these things and say, I'm going to commit to pray. I'm going to commit to to study. I'm going to commit to serve others. I'm going to commit to become more generous. I'm going to commit to develop intentional relationships with people that aren't a part of my group. And so the question that we wrap up with today is, what practices and disciplines are you doing? Or are you, what practices and disciplines are you going to do that will lead you to know the knowable God? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I hope you don't take it only as a rhetorical question. Feel free to take inventory. I, I picked the, the, the marriage analogy at the beginning because Jesus calls the church his bride. And a bride that doesn't want to spend time with her husband seems to indicate that there's something wrong. Seems to indicate that the relationship isn't functioning the way that maybe it was intended. And so the question for us as a church is how will we get to know the knowable God? Of all the thousands of people that met Jesus, three were on the mountaintop with him. And in a few weeks we'll have Good Friday and there will be two people standing with Jesus at the cross. And one of them says, Mom. Um, the other is the one that the Bible says he loved, which is John's way of saying that I'm his favorite. Um, but I'm going to pray as the worship team comes. 
I'm going to leave you with that question. What practices and disciplines are you doing or going to do that will lead you to know the knowable God? Um, Pray with me, if you will. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And Father, then may we receive these words from you, that God Almighty has mercy on us, that God Almighty forgives all of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. May God strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. May those words today be your words to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.